0: Next is Mohammed Al aryan I stop. I want to listen to what this man has to say because, in my opinion, he is one of the smartest guys with the view of the world and the pulse of the world. He also knows what is, he suspects might happen, and uh, things are changing so fast right now. So we're going to ask Mohammed Al aryan who's the chief economic advisor at Alliance. He's the chairman of President Obama's Global Development Council. And former CEO and chief investment officer of PIMCO, author of a great book, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's in a instability and avoiding the next collapse. That this is really what we're talking about today. Because things are changing so rapidly. I don't know how anybody can be complacent. Any comments, Kim?
1: Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking with Mohammed Alarian because um, when Trump got elected, I think that was a bit of a game changer in terms of what's going to happen next. All of a sudden, we were all going down this one road called Hillary, and that changed in how it's going to affect the U.S. and the world. And uh, Mr. Elarian has a fantastic take on things and uh, one of the smartest guys I know. So I'm excited to get started.
0: Yeah. So uh, before we begin, mohammed you, know, you were on President Obama's Global Development Council, and you're also author of The Only Game in Town— which is a fantastic book but obviously you saw things that the average person does not see. And so my question to you is cuz when I read The Only Game in Town I was still kind of wondering what's really your motivation. And you know, when I write a book there's a it's a lot of work to write a book and you've got to be extremely motivated there's got to be something driving you. And so I'd like to know what was the reason for writing The Only Game in Town. And what do you want the readers or your listeners to know about why the book is important to them? So first and, for,
2: and foremost, Robert and Kim, thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's such a you. huge honor and a thrill. It's, it's our honor. Jeez, oh, good grief. <laughs> you know, the book was written because I feel strongly that the time has come to think differently. It's not just what and why we think about, about the world is how we think about the world. I was seeing improbables and unthinkables become reality. I was seeing signals coming out from various places that were suggesting that we were on the cusp of some big changes. And I thought no better way of seeing the world than through the eyes of central banks, those boring institutions, technocratic in nature, that suddenly had been pushed to take on enormous responsibility and to do something that doesn't come naturally to them, which is experiment, an experiment with virtually no game plan to draw on. And I thought that looking at the world from the eyes of central banks could shed light on where we are and, much more importantly, where we're going.
0: So what did you want the reader to know? Because I read the book, and you're you're an absolute perfect gentleman whereas I'm kind of the opposite you know I like to just nail it on the head what was what is your concern what was beyond that is there you know, like you're saying if if they don't get it right this time what happens yeah so the first thing
2: is, is the notion that the road that we have been on was a very artificial road for the global economy and markets and it's ending and we ha- we have political signals economic signals financial signals if we just Look up, will realize that our world is being shaken both from above and from below by technology. So the first message is: you know what? Don't get complacent. Things are changing all around you, and don't dismiss all these improbables as noise. They are consistent signals.
1: When you, oh That's- Mohammed, when you talk about improbables, you, what what are the improbables you're you're referring to? So-
2: so so the first improbable is, of course, the election of Donald Trump. Very few people gave him any chance, and yet he is now the president-elect. Another improbable is negative interest rates, mm-hmm. this notion that on almost a third of global government debt, creditors lend their money and then pay. They pay for the privilege of lending their money. Yes. They're not receiving interest. They're paying. Yes. Um, Brexit well. in
0: Britain, the <laughs> When you think that- about that, doesn't that just—
2: it's absurd, but but it's happened. And and, and, and and in Britain, the notion that the British would vote to extricate themselves from a free trade zone that has served them well was deemed unthinkable, and yet it happened. There's a whole list of things that most of us would have attached very low probability to. So let me ask and you this, Muhammad, yeah. this is my
0: question. You know, what does it mean? Because our program goes out for people like Kim and I, the average guys. The question is, you know, when somebody says we have negative interest rates and I hear parents saying to their kids, save money, does that correlate to you?
2: So what correlates to me is the notion that we're going to have to save more because we can no longer rely on interest income. That but, correlates to me.
0: But, but if, But if the banks are simultaneously printing – or quantitative easing and we have all this debt coming up yeah I, how much can I don't you not save think, so, so first I don't think negative industries are gonna are gonna stay I
2: think they are a signal of, of tensions and contradictions and they cause the seeds of their own destruction right, right. so you know, I wouldn't tell somebody, go out and and buy German government bonds at negative interest rates. No, don't do that. That's
1: absurd. <laughs> that Sounds <laughs> absurd. <laughs>
2: but, but people
0: have done so. I mean, it's yeah. amazing how many people yeah. have done so. And I hear a lot of people recommending bonds, but the U.S. bonds yeah. it differently. Now, the other question to you is how does negative interest rates affect people like CalPERS or the pension plans? I mean, I what I hear is, is most pension plans, from what I hear, are based upon a 7.5% return of the pensioners or the future pensioners' money, but they're not getting 7.5% with negative interest rates. Is that, is that your understanding also? Yes. So,
2: so there's two elements to your question. The first one is that what, the, what do negative interest rates do to the system, including to pension providers? And basically they make it very hard to anybody – who promises long-term financial protection instruments. So for example, life insurance. It is very hard these days to issue new policies that make financial sense. Why? Because the provider of the life insurance is gonna find it very difficult to invest in low-risk instruments to pay you when, when your life insurance policy comes due similarly for re- any retirement plan now pension funds don't have to invest in bonds they can go to other instruments and they have they have gone in a big way to to alternatives and to the stock markets but they take a lot more risk in doing so so it's risk on for them it has been very much risk on for them because otherwise they can't even come close to the 7% Seven to eight percent that you mentioned.
0: Okay, once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. We're talking to a very special guest, very special man, a person that Kim and I and the world look up to for wisdom, shall we say, in this time of chaos, is Mohammed El Aryan. He's the chief economic advisor at Allianz, chairman of President Obama's Global Development Council, and former CEO and co chief investment officer of Pimco. So, again, Mohammed, this is the question, okay, because our people are the when we not at the central bank level. But if a person, the average person like Kim and I, we're attempting to survive financially, what do you say to them if they're trying to save money? They have a pension and the pension and interest rates interest rates are low. They're trying to save money and their and their insurance policies may not cover. And then on top of that we have OPEC, you know, and all these things. Before we get to Donald Trump, I mean, these are the things I think you see that Trump will be faced with. Is, is that correct?
2: Correct, and and they all speak to this notion, not just of uncertainty, but of unusual uncertainty. It's un- instability, isn't it? Isn't
0: that what you're really saying? It's
2: it's 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 potential instability, but in the first instance, Robert, it's unusual uncertainty. Yeah. What, what and, do you and, What do you and, mean by
1: that? Unusual uncertainty.
2: I mean that you can't even rely on long-standing relationships, that, that the world oh. is moving in such strange ways that you're not just uncertain, you're unusually uncertain. Let me put it a different way. It's one thing here, you know, in California to be on a freeway and expecting traffic. It's another thing. Being on a freeway and expecting the combination of traffic snow and fog okay (laughs) (laughs) the world becomes much more uncertain and and uh, certainly we're not used to those conditions so it speaks a lot to the world you face and the recognition that you may end up making a mistake not because you want to make a mistake but the world is so uncertain now and make sure you can afford your mistakes i tell people the most important thing is to be able to afford your mistakes. And you, if you think you're going to make a mistake that you cannot afford to make, then change the way you are dealing with your finances.
1: For example, in, in your book, uh, The Only Game in Town, you, you talked about the T-junction, and right. there's two ways we could go. Now, has that, all of these unusual uncertainties and all the improbables, has how, has that affected this T-junction?
2: Yeah. So, so first, I'm really glad that, that you have your show. I'm really glad that Rob is, is writing his book because we have to realize that things that we took for granted, opportunities, if you like, are no longer there. They've changed. The formulas don't the, change the for, with
0: that. Yeah, the formulas are finished right now, as far as I can correct. see. Correct. The historic
2: formulas no longer work. Right. And that's because the world, I go back to this notion, the world is being shaken both from above and from below l- l- let me give you a simple example from below to show you how okay. how it's not just individuals you know if you were hilton it had taken you a hundred years to manage and build hotels so that you can provide rooms for seven hundred thousand people around the world along comes airbnb they've never built a hotel they've never managed a hotel they know very little about the hotel industry and yet they can provide a million rooms in six years.
0: And that's the technology that's changing the game. So our special guest today is Mohamed el Arian, Chief Econ- Economic Advisor at Allianz, uh, Chairman of President Obama's Global Development Council and former CEO and Co-Chief Investment Officer at PIMCO. He's the author of The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse, and When Markets Collide, Investment Strategies for the age of global economic change. And once again, the times they are uh, changing. And my concern is that people are doing the old formula, which is going to school to get a job. Technology is wiping them out. You have massive student loan debt. Their are housing, most, for most people, the equity in their home was their asset, and that's wiped out. And they're trying to save money at the time of negative interest rates. So that's why I'm very, very happy, honored to have Muhammad El-Aryan, a person both Kim and I respect and the world respects. Any comments?
1: Yes. Please? So, uh, Mohammed in the first segment, you talked about the improbables have now become a reality. And one of those improbables is the election of Donald Trump. So how does President-elect Trump affect the economy, affect all of these changes, and what what do you see coming?
2: So first, the message is very clear, and the message is that the average person feels very insecure, financially insecure, not just about themselves, but also about the prospect for their children, Mm -hmm. because after all, this may be the first generation that sees its children worse off than they were, and people don't like that. In addition to feeling financially insecure, the average person feels angry because they have witnessed the very rich get, get richer, and the average person has struggled. So the first message that's coming out very strongly is despite what the data tells you, uh, that we've been doing better than other countries, that we've created over 414 million jobs, despite all that, the average person doesn't feel it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the second element is what I call the politics of anger, that when you get angry, you mistrust expert opinion, and you start looking for change and what you're looking for is just to give a very strong shock to the establishment in order to get change. That is what Mr. Trump's election tells us, that is what Brexit tells us about the United Kingdom and I suspect we'll get similar messages in other European countries.
0: Right, Kim and I were just in Germany and Amsterdam last week and um, it's a different world from America. You know they're in the middle of a European shakeup, and America's pretty complacent again, and that's why I think Americans get a little cocky. And yet, when I'm in Europe, they're you know they're looking at Marine Le Pen right now, and even Merkel becomes in question, the Chancellor of Germany. So my question to you is this: Okay, how important is Europe to America? I mean, obviously, it is, but you know we have the Italian referendum. And if Italy goes the way of Greece, isn't that almost the end of the euro? So so Europe is important
2: to us, not as much economically as, as politically, security wise, and because markets have become very global. So if it was just about the economy, we can still be the good house while the European neighborhood is challenged. We wouldn't be dragged down by the neighborhood. Our economy is strong enough. It's not great, but it's strong enough. But politically, geopolitically, and from a security perspective, we need Europe as an ally. We need a stable, strong Europe as our ally. And then financially, markets are very interlinked. So if someone gets a cold in Europe, we get exposed to that cold here. So we have an interest in in Europe doing better. In terms of how close are they to something that would be truly disruptive to the global economy, and that is the disintegration, as you called it, of the Eurozone, I don't think we are at five minutes to midnight, but we get, we're getting closer. And what you could see is a series of improbable election outcomes this year, culminating, as you pointed out, in the German elections in the fall of two thousand and seventeen. If Germany gets destabilized, then you've lost your anchor yeah. for the Eurozone.
0: Yeah. Which is the point of my question to you, because you've been on President Obama's global development council. How do you think or what are you what would you advise President Trump to look out for? Because I'm not saying he's not a global man, but he's pretty US centric. His businesses are all over the world. But, you know, Kim and I know him personally. He likes his cheeseburgers. So uh, with that said, given your ability to see the world via President Obama's Global Development Council, what would you say to President Trump, watch out for this, or these are important points to look out for?
2: So if I were to advise him, and I don't have that privilege, but if I were to, to advise him, I would translate a lot of his domestic initiatives into a global context and ask the question do you get a virtuous cycle
1: so okay. certain when you when you say pa- domestic initiatives such as
2: so for example corporate tax reform yes infrastructure spending deregulation all that makes the us economy stronger and we should pursue it and it also makes the global economy stronger and there are very interesting second round effects that can make America even stronger, even greater than they would on a standalone basis. Why? Because the US is still at the center at the center of the global economy. So to the extent that he pursues those policies, then you end up with the ability to turbocharge the US benefits because of the global linkages. But there's another side there are other policies that go the other way. So I have no problem that free trade should also be fair trade. And I think there's a lot to be done in terms of labor standards to make sure that we do compete on a level playing field. And I think reminding other countries that we could implement tariffs is a very good way of getting their attention to make sure that we do have not just free free trade, but also fair trade. I would, however, be careful about dismantling certain things. So I wouldn't dismantle NAFTA, for example.
1: Okay. Why not? You
2: because you can't replace something with nothing. I would improve <laughs> NAFTA. Mm, I, I think that, 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 yeah, I think you, you, you can tweak it. Arrangements are always dynamic. Circumstances change. The world is different today than when NAFTA was first agreed to. And, of course, it should evolve. But be careful
0: about dismantling something unless you have a better alternative. Good. But, so the question is when his, prompt, his campaign thing of building a wall, what was your opinion of that when you were listening to it? Relative so to I, and,
1: and the whole immigration issue.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I, I think that immigration
2: reform is something that, that we need. Um, we have a system that, that isn't working well. And, and everybody was talking about immigration reform. Um, the type of of approach you take. I don't think you want to starve this country of skills. Um, The latest jobs report shows you that we have a problem with labor participation. There simply aren't enough people with the required skills that are needed for an economy as sophisticated as we have today. Now, what we really want to do is, of course, enhance our education system, do better labor retooling, and we should do that. But also, we shouldn't completely close the door on skilled immigration that makes everybody better off. So, so I would I would be less blunt in terms of <laughs> of the message on immigration.
0: That's that's, that's think, putting it
2: kindly. Blunt. <laughs> no, but you know, this is he he has gotten people's attention. Right. These issues are being discussed, um, and already. Since In the last few weeks since his election, um, the messages have, uh, have gotten more refined right. on virtually every issue.
0: He's becoming presidential. So once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki at the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Our special guest today is Mohammed El-Aryan, a person that the world listens to when he speaks. He's a chief economic advisor at Allianz. He's the chairman of President Obama's Global Development Council. He's the author of The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. When Markets Collide, another book, When Markets Collide, Investment Strategies for the Age of Global Economic Change. So this is my next question on the thing being free trade versus fair trade. What would happen if he actually brought that money back, you know, the so-called corporate money sitting off offshore? Is that a real thing or not? I mean, you know, most people don't have any money. You know, how can big corporations have billions of dollars stashed overseas. What because, does that because mean? Because
1: right now, if they were to do that, we have like the highest tax rate, right? And Trump's talking about what, 10, a 10% rate to bring it back?
2: Correct, he, he has mentioned 10 to 15%, okay. as opposed to the 30 plus right now. Look, first, first we are talking about a lot of money that's being held outside. And the reason why companies hold it outside is because it gives them flexibility. They can always bring it back and pay the tax, but they don't know whether they're going to be using it for their operations overseas or not, so they'd rather keep the flexibility. And you know what? Maybe the tax rate is going to come down. Maybe they'll get so. So companies are actually reacting in a way that makes sense to them, but doesn't make sense to the country. Mm. And what that is in response to is something that Mr. Trump and others have spoken about, which is we haven't reformed our tax system since the mid-'80s. All we've done is we have modified it here and there in response to special interests, the result of which we have a tax system that's no longer coherent. It is no longer pro-growth. And the key issue that the money being stashed outside is telling you is that there are costs to delaying the reform of the tax system. And that's why both parties were talking about corporate tax reform. Now, before the last elections, there was no way of getting anything through Congress, anything, including an annual budget. Um, The most basic element of any economic governance is to have a budget. We haven't had an active budget for seven years because our Congress was so dysfunctional. Now there is the opportunity to get Congress to work on something coherent in terms of corporate tax reform, and the benefits will, will go way beyond just companies bringing back their So
0: money. You, think, you think it's a good idea?
2: Oh, I think it's, it's not just a good idea. I think it's, it's a necessity. So the hope that the Fed will be able to hand off, will be able to pass the burden of economic management to a much more comprehensive policy response. Why? Because as you mentioned, as Robert mentioned, it is running out of bullets. And it has had to do some pretty unconventional stuff. And just like when you are experimenting with unconventional medication, you worry about the side effects. And the Fed's side effects are starting to be of concern.
0: Wow. We talked about Europe and the Fed and the central banks like the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, the Bank of China. I wouldn't get personal, being Japanese-American, I don't speak Japanese, but what do you think this guy Abe is doing with Abenomics, you know, dropping interest rates so low that the Japanese, actually the number one savers in the world, pull their cash out of banks? I mean, that's kind of goofy, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and that tells you what happens when you don't do the handoff. So Abenomics originally had three, what they call three arrows and you were supposed to shoot all three arrows at the same time, and the target being high growth. The first arrow was to improve the functioning of the economy, the supply side, productivity, flexibility. The second arrow was to give a bit more fiscal stimulus, and the third arrow was to give a bit more monetary stimulus. As it turns out, really only the third arrow has been shot, Mm. and it has been so relied on That you've had two consequences one is that the central bank has had to do very extreme things not only negative interest rates but also committing to targeting a certain level for bonds which means you take on the whole market and the second thing is that the central bank's actions are not just less effective almost ineffective that become counterproductive. And that I think is a lesson to the rest of us that if you don't pursue a comprehensive policies, in the case of Japan, if you don't use all three arrows and you over rely on, on a single measure, then you risk becoming not just ineffective but counterproductive.
0: So they did monetary policy, which is kind of the feds or the central banks you know, territory, but there was no fiscal, which is government change. Is that what you're saying?
2: So, so like, like the U.S., like Europe, the central bank there is relatively autonomous. It doesn't have to go to parliament to implement certain measures. Just like here, when the Fed decides to raise interest rates or lower interest rates, it doesn't have to go to Congress. It can just do it. That's very different from a fiscal agency, the Treasury. It's very different from the labor measures. So central banks have a lot more flexibility because they're politically more autonomous now, so, the hope is that they are a bridge, but if the other people are constrained from, re- from responding, then they become the only game in town, and then you have to worry about the side effects.
0: So would you say that the central banks are doing well, the U.S. is doing, the same thing Japan is doing?
2: They're the same direction, but nothing in, in scale. So if, yes, you know, we used unconventional policies. Yes, we took interest rates to zero, but we didn't take them negative. Yes, we bought bonds, but nothing compared to what Japan is doing. And we we never went as far as taking on the market by targeting a certain level of yields on longer-term securities. So so. nothing compared to – the Bank of Japan has gone much further than the Fed.
0: So what lessons could Americans or the rest of the world take from Japan? Because a lot of people laugh at Japan, yet – Well, they laughed
1: at Japan when Japan's interest rates were crashing, and and they said, oh, that will never happen here in America, and now it is. So so, what you're right, and
2: Ben Bernanke in the early 90s wrote, wrote a paper saying why Japan won't happen here. Now, what he was talking <laughs> about is exactly what Kim said, low interest rates and low growth. Guess what? Japan happened here. Yeah. So, you know, for us, Japan is a warning. Now, remember, they've been stuck in this low growth malaise for, for over two decades. We've been stuck there for eight years Right, So they're way ahead of us, but, uh, but we should pay we, a, a lot of attention because we don't want to follow the same road. Um, we want to learn from their mistakes and do H- things differently. Are we learning? I think we are. I think the Fed certainly is learning. Um, hopefully, the political class will learn. Now, one advantage that the U.S. has, and you being Japanese-American will know, that, 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 that conformity is a big issue in Japan. Conformity oh, is a huge issue. Right right, so you don't take on the establishment, you don't take on expert opinion in the United States. People are much more entrepreneurial, right. um, so it's very hard to have disruption internal disruption um, in Japan. Um, whereas in the United States, you, you see it happening both in the private sector through amazing innovation, but you also see it in the political system through the election of Mr. Trump.
1: So, so let me ask you this, Mohammed, because it's obvious that the American people are saying we don't want, we don't trust the establishment, we don't like the establishment, being the politicians, being Wall Street. Is the establishment hearing this, and do you think there'll be change on that on that front?
2: So, I think the establishment is definitely hearing it, yeah um, and the establishment is trying to figure out what does it mean and ho- and how they should respond. Um, yes, now there's a lot of inertia in the system, so so it's it's really important that the disruptors. Um, and I mean disruption in a positive sense, um, yes. you know, making you do things better as opposed to disruption making you do things worse. Um, you know, the disruptors are going, are going to have to be be willing to take on conventional wisdom, take on expert opinion. And it's happening not only here, but it's happening across the Atlantic as well.
0: Once again, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. Our very special guest today is Mohammed el Arian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz, Chairman of President Obama's Global the Melbourne Council, I've been asking about his fantastic book, The Only Game in Town. It's about the central bank's role in the world. But there's one more thing I'm concerned about with Mr. Trump, and it's the price of oil. So not only have, you know, oil uh, interest rates dropped, but oil prices have dropped. And now OPEC is basically forming, you know enforcing its global cartel, attempting to push the price of oil back up. And I want to know what your f- viewpoints of that is.
2: So I think we are entering, most likely, a range for oil prices of $45 to $55. Well,
0: let me ask you this, because I'm uh, I'm a layperson here. Aren't a lot of the economies, like the Russian economy and Colombian economy, based upon $100 barrel oil?
2: Yes, and when they saw oil go all the way down to $30, um, they got terrified. And that's why they've been brought back to the table. And you just mentioned the latest p- production cut agreement that includes not just the OPEC countries but the non-OPEC countries, include, including Russia, that has committed to a cut of 300,000 barrels. So their minds has been focused, um, and they've be- and they've been chastened by the impact of much lower so oil prices. So- this is
0: this is my question to you then: if it's a hundred dollar basis for the economy, that's like somebody making fifty thousand dollars a year, and suddenly his. Salaries cut to $25,000 a year. So from your global perspective, what is the impact of oil at 50% of what it needs to be? The first thing
2: these countries have done is, is they've drawn down their savings and, and they've borrowed more. And, and, you know, it's like an individual. You know you can't live off your savings and you, can't, you know you can't just you know, um, use your credit card all the time. You've got to change the way you behave. So stage two is to look to generate non-oil revenue and cut some of your spending and and we're seeing these countries do it now if you are nigeria or venezuela then you find that very hard to do because yes. the system <laughs> right. is so complex and there you get a very disorderly market adjustment
1: and when you said that when you said the price of oil you see it at 45 to 55 why why that range why there what's the reason for that
2: so when you go below 45 OPEC countries start hurting a lot, and Mm. they focus on reducing supply. So the oil price benefits from support of lower supply after a certain point. When you go higher than 55, then you bring on the new technology, shale production in particular, in a big way. Okay. So, Mm. so what happened is the market is starting to stumble into a ten-dollar range. That is all on the supply side. Hmm. On the one hand, is opec cutting production. On the other hand, when prices get towards 55 or higher, shale, shale output comes in in a big way.
0: So this right. is the big question on everybody's mind right now is the love affair between Putin and Trump. <laughs> and, there was and they've the, never met, right? They've never met. I know, <laughs> but the, there, was, there was also a love-hate between Obama and Putin. You know, given you're part of President Obama's Global Development Council, what is your opinion? So I I think Russia is really complicated. And I think that whether it's Secretary Clinton
2: or the president-elect, the Russian relationship is is, is a very tricky one. They are having issues at home. They're having pressures, as you point out, from lower oil prices. The oldest trick in the book Kim and Robert, is when you have pressures at home, you go on a foreign adventure. Yes. start a war. And yes. they've gone on foreign adventures. Yes, the first have. one was Ukraine, and, s- and the second one now is Syria. Syria. <laughs> and when they go on foreign adventures, they play to a completely different set of rules than we do. So what, it,
0: what, what do you and, see? and it
2: causes all sorts of challenging issues in terms of how should we respond. So, so I think that this is going to be a very important strategic relationship. I think it's a very complex relationship, um, and it was simplified beyond um, belief in the campaign by the Russians themselves as well. Um, and now we're going to see the complexity of it.
0: So let me ask you: that we have a, we have a deadline coming up in March, right? The we have to borrow more money. Right, right. It's What's stealing, your what would your what advice what advice would you have for him at that time? We can't so keep I think cutting. That he ne- so I think he needs, he, needs,
2: he needs to come in and he needs to have a six-month budget. We need to get out of this inertia that we have been on on the budget side. So he needs to have a six-month budget that sets out his priorities. I think that, that as long as you invest in growth-promoting activities, and that's a really important qualification, there is room to borrow a little bit more but you have to make sure that you promote growth. You know, like, it's like about everybody. what you
1: spend it on, right? Correct, yeah. correct. If, yeah. you,
2: if, you ca- if you can sp- It's a little bit like an education. You don't want an education for the sake of an education, okay, and, and certainly you don't want to finance it with student loans. If you're going to get an education that doesn't pay you, get you a better job, then you shouldn't do it, and you certainly shouldn't use debt to do it. But if that education improves your skill set, makes you more productive, makes you able to compete better in the world, mm-hmm. earn more, then that's fine. Get a student loan and do it because you're going to be much better off post debt because you're going to you would have acquired something very important. And I think that is what's critical about investing in the country to promote its economic growth. Yes,
1: yes. So one one final question, Mohammed, for our listeners: um, What would you advise them in terms of what a good financial plan might look like today? So,
2: so I would go back to where we started this is that there is a reason why you're feeling so unsettled and some are feeling insecure. The world is changing. Make sure that that you can have that mix of resilience and agility. So, so always question why you're doing certain things. We, we, joked, we joked about people buying bonds at very low rates or at negative rates, and yet they did it. A lot of people did it. Why? Because they never questioned why they were doing certain things.
0: And so I, th- I thank our special guest today, Mohammed el Aaron, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz, Chairman of President Obama's Global Development Council, and former CEO and Co-Chief Investment Officer at PIMCO. And PIMCO was the largest bond company in the world. And really, if you understand money and the monetary system, it's based on bonds. And that's why having Mohammed El-Aryan as a guest the second time, it's really an honor for us. But he knows the world because if you understand bonds, you can see the world of money. And he is the author of The Only Game in Town, Central Banks, Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. Well, I
1: like how he ended the show because, you know, he talked about that the improbables are now a reality. The improbables being the election of Donald Trump, negative interest rates, the vote for Brexit. And he said what you need more than anything is right now to be resilient and agile and to not just follow blindly, to start asking questions because things have changed so dramatically. Don't just blindly follow, but start asking questions and take
0: care of you and once again you can this come to the most popular part of our program Is ask robert you can submit your questions to ask robert at richdadradio.com I have a and give you a commercial message here coming out next february is my latest book why the rich are getting richer and it's about what real financial education is and why the rich are getting richer is important is because rich dad poor dad next year is 20 years and almost everything predicted in Rich Dad Poor Dad has come true. So we're coming with a new edition of Rich Dad Poor Dad. It's gonna be unchanged, but the comments on the side will make Rich Dad Poor Dad a very important read. And why the rich are getting richer is called grad school, graduate school for fans of Rich Dad. You know, if you understand why the rich are getting richer, again, it has to do with a lot of what Muhammad talks about. It's about debt and equity, debt and taxes. And you know, Trump is trying to save carrier by tax breaks. If you can understand that, you'll understand why the rich pay less in taxes or nothing in taxes, and they use debt to get rich. Whereas President Obama is completely the opposite of Donald Trump. Obama pays 30% in tax, and Mitt Romney running against Obama was paying only 12% tax. So which kind of president do you want? A president that pays no tax, or a president that pays a lot of tax? I'm not Republican or Democrat, but I'm saying it's time for you to start choosing who you listen to. So that's why we have the Rich Dad Radio Show. You can submit your questions again, once again to ask Robert at richdadradio.com. What's the first question there, Melissa?
3: Our first question today comes from Angelica in Miami. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. She says, Robert, I'm 53 years old and I've lived 27 years of my life in Cuba in communism in and- 27 years in the U.S. in capitalism. My knowledge about finances and money are so limited, and my financial IQ is very low. I recently finished your book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was taken aback at how much sense everything you said has made. My question is, do you think that there are realistic chances that at my age I can improve my financial IQ and start to build wealth?
0: That's a fantastic question because it really has nothing to do with age. It has to do with uh, desire, ambition, and how willing you are to learn. It's one of the problems I have with with Cuba and the U.S. is most of our school systems are more like the communist system. They don't tell you anything about money. Most school teachers lean towards the left, the communist side, not the capitalist side. And that has always been my complaint between rich dad. you know, My poor dad was not a communist, but he always believed the government should take care of people. And you know, living in Cuba, what happens when communists take over the economy. And that's what my poor dad espoused. My rich dad, my best friend's father, was a hardcore capitalist. So what we saw was a classic battle between Obama and Trump or Hillary and Trump. It was the battle between communism and capitalism in a very hardline, unsophisticated way of looking at it. So to answer your question, Financial IQ very simply means your ability to solve financial problems. That's what IQ means. When you look at your academic IQ, how well can you solve a problem? Well, you have to have financial IQ to solve your financial problems. So can you improve that? Absolutely. But you can't do it from a point of view of a communist that the government's gonna take care of you. All you have to do is work hard and pay taxes. That is a communist point of view. Communism is very simply control of the government, the economy, and education. And that's what we have in the U.S. also here. And that's the reason my poor dad and my rich dad were pro-education, but different types of education. So IQ is how well do you solve your problem? If you have a $100 problem and you can't solve it, that's that's a very low IQ. When you get to Trump's range, he's now going to try and solve a $20 trillion problem. He's got to have a high IQ for that. So it's up to you. How high is your IQ and how high do you want to take it? That's up to you. Any comments, Kim?
1: Well, first of all, Angelica at 53 is not old. <laughs> By any means, she's sounding like she thinks she's old. She's younger old. than she's us. Young. She's young. And I'm just going to reiterate that um, absolutely she can up her financial IQ and absolutely she can become financially secure. And the first step is the change of mindset. And she's already read Rich Dad Poor Dad and it sounds like she's made that sh- uh, one shift already. So Angelica, it's, it's drive, it's desire, and it's education and taking action. So yeah, go get started.
0: Or if you want the government to take care of you, you don't need it. That's really the issue here. And that's the problem I have with the school system. Most of them have no idea how to take care of themselves. Most school teachers are like my poor dad. My poor dad lost his job in 1973 when he ran against the establishment and he could not recover because even with a PhD, he didn't have the skill sets to survive in the real world. And that's what Al Aaron is talking about, is with technology coming along, millions of people are gonna lose their jobs and they don't have the skill sets to survive. They don't have the financial IQ to survive on the street. And that's why the Rich Dad Company was formed, that's why Donald Trump and I write books, is because you'd better be able to survive or as the song by Bob Dylan says, You're gonna start sinking like a stone and millions of stink sinking like a stone.
1: And, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to our show who are in the network marketing business. And, I mean, that's a, that's a good place to start. I mean, to, I mean, I mean, I was in network marketing when um, before Absolutely. I became an entrepreneur. And you learn a lot of great skills. You learn about business. You have a support team there that will help you move forward. So it's really a, a really good, good alternative to start in the world of business.
0: And you surround with like-minded people. And Donald Trump and I are the only two guys in the so-called financial education business that endorse network marketing because we support you being a capitalist, not a communist. Next
3: question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Amanda in Canada. Favorite book, Rich Dad Poor Dad. How will the new presidency and global financial change affect Canada? Will we be piggybacking the US or will we have an individual advantage?
0: Oh, we love all the Canadians, our favorite (laughs) people up there, but as you and I always know, if America does well, Canada does well. If America goes down, Canada goes down. And I think it's interesting that Trudeau is now trying to cut a Brexit, not a Brexit deal, but a kind of an EU deal with England to now. That's a pretty smart move. Plus, Carney, the Bank of uh, the Bank of England, is a Canadian. So, again, it's, it's what Mohammed Al-Aaron was talking about. The central banks control the world, and the, the guy who controls the central bank of England is Canadian. So, Viva Canada! Next question, Melissa.
3: (laughs) Our next question comes from Derek, also from Canada. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Says, in 1997, you considered the world the information age, but now with the dollar getting lower in value and certain economic theories, do you still consider it the information age?
0: It better have better information, but most importantly, the reason the Rich Dad radio show was created was to bring you people who know what they're talking about. You know, Obama was talking. I'm not Republican or Democrat, you know. But Obama was talking about fake news. Hey, this whole world is full of fake news. I don't know how anybody can believe the web. You know, they go online, the Internet. That's all BS as far as I'm concerned. I don't know how anybody can believe any of that stuff. So all you guys are tweeting and twatting around the place. What the hell are you? Who are you listening to? So we have Rich Dad Radio Show. It's for you to listen to people who we believe have credible, who know what they're talking about. One more thing. The problem with news is this. It's emotional. It was not designed to be informational. News is designed to stir your emotions. But, and if it's too complex, the news can't handle it.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.